This podcast does not constitute financial or investment advice. It is for educational, general information and entertainment purposes only. Please consult with your own financial advisor before making any financial decisions. It's getting girls to picture that they can do it. I'm not big, I'm tiny, I'm like five foot three. And when I see pictures of me with all of my colleagues and residents, I don't realize how short I am until I see those pictures. It's brains and power tools. And so you don't have to be huge and strong. And you know, in fact, if you try to do it by brute force, you're actually gonna hurt the patient. It's about finesse, it's about thinking, it's about knowing your tools. And that's something that almost anybody can do if you put your mind to it. You're listening to Banking on Girls, the podcast that explores the importance of financial literacy for girls and young women. And I'm your host, Marina Batmiwala. Join me on this journey to uncover insights and inspiration. Hi everyone, my guest today is Dr. Susan Bacata, the Chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California in San Diego. She's internationally recognized for her work on bone fragility disorders from osteoporosis to rare genetic bone diseases. Prior to joining UC San Diego Health, Dr. Bacata served as orthopedic surgeon and professor at UCLA. She holds a patent on technology for protecting and repairing cartilage and musculoskeletal soft tissue and has published numerous research papers. She's also a graduate of Columbia University and enjoys spending time with her family outdoors in beautiful San Diego. Welcome, Susan. Oh, thank you, Marina. So nice to join you today. Susan, you're an orthopedic surgeon, and I just found a statistic that said that only 7% of orthopedic surgeons in the United States are women. How did you end up in this very male-dominated field? So it's interesting. My mom always tells the story. When I was little, I used to dress in a nurse's costume. I loved playing nurse. And when I was about five years old, somebody asked me, don't you want to be a doctor? And it suddenly occurred to me that I could be a doctor. And the only doctors I was aware of at that time, besides the pediatrician, were orthopedic surgeons. My dad did a lot of things with professional sports. And so it was not uncommon for us to sit at the end of the bench with the teams. And who sits at the end of the bench? The team doctor and the trainers. So I began to picture another aspect of medicine in the world of orthopedics. And it was a time in orthopedics where many exciting innovations were starting to happen, total joint replacements, arthroscopy. And so when the doctors would talk to me as a little kid, you could see the joy in what they found in their work. And that was infectious. And I think that began my interest in orthopedics. I looked at all different things. And in fact, One would think with that exposure, I would have gone into sports. And instead, I do oncology, metabolic, and rare bone diseases, which is a very unusual niche in orthopedic surgery. But I think that fascination with being able to help people feel better and help people have improved quality of life always kept drawing me back to orthopedics. In terms of being around men all the time, I think I got used to it. I mean, I played on a soccer team when I was in upper elementary school and middle school. And at the time in New York and New Jersey, they didn't have girls soccer teams. So 
commonly I was the only girl on the team or sometimes the only girl in that whole section. I have a brother who's very close in age to me and the two of us often did a lot of sports together. I think my parents, it never, it never struck them that it couldn't be that way. And so I think we grew up thinking that from the beginning. I definitely, as I got older, you know, I was always happy to dress up and I liked being a girl but I think I always felt like I really had permission to try almost anything. And, and I give a lot of credit to my parents for that. Yeah, I think those formative years are so important in being able to visualize yourself in any role in the future. I absolutely agree with that. How many orthopedic surgeons, for example, do you work with who are women? So in my department, there are three women orthopedic surgeons out of a total of 17 surgeons. So it's still a very small percentage. That's actually a large number of women in an orthopedics department. If you think about the community, it's still, as you said, only about 7% of all orthopedic surgeons are women. In my age group, it's an even smaller number. It's about 4 to 5%. The good news is that more women are starting to enter the field. When I started about 30 years ago, that's exactly, it was about four to 5% of all trainee applicants were women. Now it's about 10 to 11%, which is a huge step forward. And there have been a few years in the last few years where 14% of the trainee applicants or of the trainees who matched were women. The problem is that if we continue at that growth pace, which is wonderful to reach parity, 50-50, and think about it, if we are to represent our community and our customers, actually more women eventually wind up having musculoskeletal disease because arthritis and osteoporosis are more common in women. We have to get to 50-50 and it's going to take us almost 200 years to get there at this rate. The numbers are even worse for underrepresented minorities. So women have made the most gains in orthopedic surgery. We definitely, we need to do better. And I'm very fortunate. I'm the fourth woman to be named an orthopedic chair in the United States. There are now seven Getting other women, particularly girls in middle school and high school and college and young ladies in medical school, to see women in positions of leadership in areas that have been male-dominated, whether it's tech or orthopedics or engineering, it's really important. Just like you said, when I my parents let me picture like, oh, of course, you could be a doctor, you could be an orthopedic surgeon. It's getting girls to picture that they can do it. I'm not big. I'm tiny. I'm like five foot three. And when I see pictures of me with all of my colleagues and residents, I don't realize how short I am until I see those pictures. It's brains and power tools. And so you don't have to be huge and strong. And, you know, in fact, if you try to do it by brute force, you're actually going to hurt the patient. It's about finesse. It's about thinking. It's about knowing your tools. And that's something that almost anybody can do if you put your mind to it. I love that. It's brains and power tools. <laughs> That's great. You were the fourth female chair of orthopedics in the country. When was the first? The first was in 2015. And interesting, she's a, a friend of mine. We first met at a meeting when we were still in our residency training, and there were only four women there. And half of us, two of us, went on to be chairs. So Lisa Gallitz became the chair of Mount Sinai in 2015. And then subsequently in 2019, 2020, and 2021, Chairs were named at University of Colorado, Yale, and UC San Diego. So now there are a few other chairs who are women. It's still a relatively small group. So there's seven out of 147 chairs in the United States who are women. We all know each other. <laughs> and it's 
been wonderful to see different perspectives. We're all very different. We represent different subspecialties in orthopedics. We came from different training pathways. It's wonderful to bring different perspectives. In training, it was very interesting for me to see how people think differently. And often women think differently when they look at spatial problems. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different way of picturing the spatial problem. In orthopedics, we deal with spatial problems all the time because we're either reconstructing fractures or rebuilding joints or rebuilding muscles and tendons. And it was just interesting to see how many of the men and the boys approach things and the women thinking in a very different way. And as a trainee, when I was often the only woman in the room, I would get frustrated or the person training me would get frustrated because we were thinking about it in a different way and approaching it a different way. When I finally, there were a couple other women who entered my residency when I was a senior resident. And it was amazing working with them because we were thinking about it the same way. Instead of driving the pins 20 times really quick to try to get in the right place, we would think about it, triangulate, and usually hit it in one or two shots. It looks like we're going slower. In the end, we're actually accomplishing it in the same amount of time. It's just a different way of approaching it. We see that in men and women from all sorts of backgrounds, but it's that's why diversity is so important. We need to have these perspectives. We need to have these approaches. We need to have these innovative ways of thinking about things. We need the people who know how to deal with the things in the box and the people who can think around the edges of the box. And we're only going to get that by having diversity. Yeah, and that's such an interesting application of diversity of thought, you know, the way you're driving the pin into the bone. That's really very illustrative. You know, one of the things you and I had talked about in the past is the gender pay gap. The United Nations did a study and they found that worldwide women earn 77 cents in the dollar for every dollar that a man earns. Do you see the same thing in orthopedics and surgery? Absolutely. And in, across medicine overall, we see that there's about a 20% pay gap between women and men. You would think in specialties like orthopedics, plastic surgery, surgery, neurosurgery, because they're small fields to begin with, that that would be much closer, that you'd see less, less difference. And in fact, it's about the same, even in those areas. We haven't solved that. Some of it, we get advice about women don't negotiate, women don't ask. There are other factors that are involved. I can tell you from experience, even if you try to negotiate, sometimes the response is, how dare you ask? Or you get pushback right away. And as a leader, when I, I have all sorts of people coming always to ask me about money and contracts and negotiations. And it is even at my level, a different conversation sometimes with women than it is with men. The expectation of what you have to have in order to deserve or earn that difference. It's a challenge in that women often will not approach a leadership role until they are 100% qualified. And when you get to that point, you're actually overqualified for that job. Whereas often we see a lot of men, as soon as they hit the 50% mark, they'll come and say, I'm it. I'm the person that you want, even though they have a tremendous amount of growth that has to happen to really get to the point. You really want someone who's about 70 to 80% there. And trying to both encourage women and encourage underrepresented minorities to see that value in themselves. But many times throughout their education, throughout their lives, they've always had to hit a higher bar. 
And so they've had those expectations for themselves and people have those expectations for them. And it's important for us really to, to try to look across the field universally. There's no difference in the work. You know, if I fix a fracture or one of my male colleagues fixes a fracture, there's no significant difference in the work. Expectations of responsibilities in education or, for example, dealing with my children and school and childcare and having to take steps back in promotion or slow down my promotion progression clock whenever I was pregnant. Those are all things that over the course of your career create problems and set you behind your peers. We haven't quite figured out how to balance that. And there's no way of getting around biology. In orthopedics, when you're pregnant, we have to wear lead when we use fluoroscopy. When you're pregnant, you have to wear double layer. So you're wearing about 35 pounds of lead. Then you have the baby and the weight you gain from the pregnancy. So for example, with my son, I was 65 pounds heavier than I normally would be going to the operating room. And that takes a trend. That's at that point, it was you know almost 50% greater in my weight. And that takes a toll on you physically. You can't quite do the same things. Totally worth it for the children. But we have to find a way that that doesn't then slow you down from being able to continue on your normal progression or represent across the board differences in the way we have to help in our families. So how have you navigated this in your own career, Susan, in terms of negotiating for salary, going for the job of chair? So I will tell you, this job is probably my first best negotiation I've tried before, and a lot of times the answer was, you just have to do better to try to earn it. Sometimes I would get a little bit of what I would ask for, but I had to keep coming back. And I think it took me a while to really say, no, I have this value. I shouldn't have to prove myself three or four times before the answer is yes. I would make some small steps but not ever be able to really achieve things that were equal to my peers. I'm a clinician scientist. So, you know, we usually make less money than our purely clinical peers. And I always accepted that, but that became a reason to justify the gap, even as I became very successful as a scientist and had additional funding. I got smarter with each negotiation. I think one of the best things that ever happened to me is when I became a vice chair in a department, I was assigned a coach to help me. It had not occurred to me that people in business regularly get coaches as you move up in leadership. We don't do that as often in medicine. It was fantastic. It really helped me expand my own leadership skills. It gave me connections to all sorts of resources. I had people to bounce things off of as I asked questions, showed me how to get data so that I could really show numbers for pay parity. And that was life-changing for me. It really helped me when I was negotiating as a chair. UCSD is about the middle in terms of size within the UC. I essentially took the attitude of, fine, then my pay should land in the middle of the chair's pay, particularly since my level of experience was relatively close to the other chairs in the division. And that, that was very helpful because I didn't have to move. I didn't have to take a different job at that time. This is a very good job for me. And I was well qualified to take the position, but I wanted them to value me. And that 
really changed my conversation. I think I valued myself and that took me a long time to learn. I'm really trying to teach both of my children, both my daughter and my son, how important it is to value yourself, not overvalue, but certainly don't undervalue, value yourself and what you're bringing to the team. So you're running a department, presumably that comes with budgets and learning about running budgets. How did you grow up learning about money? What were some of your childhood influences in the way you think about money now? So it's interesting. My mom came from basically a farm style family in Western Pennsylvania. My dad also grew up in Western Pennsylvania. Neither of my parents' families were wealthy at all. Both my parents are very successful and we grew up in the New York City area. But I think that foundation of how they had grown up was translated through to us. We had opportunities to travel all over the world and go to amazing events and go to Broadway shows, things that my parents loved and enjoyed. But they always made us very conscious of the value of money and budgets. My mom, I'd laugh, my mom used to make us do math in our heads. So when we'd go grocery shopping with her, you had to kind of get close to what the bill was going to be. And then you could pick dessert. And that has been an incredibly valuable skill in my lifetime. My mom, I think, also taught us math is a language. It's a universal language. And I think traveling so much with my dad, even when we couldn't speak the language, we could always negotiate with people in numbers and a piece of paper. And that's incredibly powerful. So that's why mastering some language and politeness, but mastering math was really important. And even now, I find in my job with budgets, with questions that get pushed to me, math is neutral. It's unemotional. So that if I can approach the problem with the math, I can de-escalate the emotions that are in some of these negotiations, just play it out as math. And those things, I think my parents taught us very well. They also always helped us. The value of education and investing in education was very important to them. But even starting in high school, before that, gosh, middle school, we had paper routes. We always had to be responsible for some purchases on our own, starting you know, as soon as we were able to earn money, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And that made us make our own value choices with what money we had, what we wanted to do with it. I definitely developed a love of travel and being able to have some experiences that just brought me joy. That was very helpful when I was a resident. We make very little money, or at least at the time I was a resident, things have gotten a little bit better, but very little money. And in fact, when I was an intern, once I covered my rent and I shared an apartment with someone, I had to defer my student loan payments. I had to pay for car just because I needed to drive for work. I had $50 a month to eat, right? So in today's dollars, that's $100, but that's $3 a day. I didn't realize I had an MD and a bachelor's degree. And I have books that I kept. I literally had to keep books of what I spent so that I would make sure that I landed on the right amount of money. I set aside though about $800 each year for me to be able to have a trip. Residency was so stressful. I needed something to really look forward to. I needed something where I could fully relax and get joy from it. And I could have dedicated that money towards food money, 
but I learned to cook for myself. I learned how to look at books, which helped people who were on food stamps or women's infant and children, the SNAP program now, how you could eat healthy on a very low budget. I learned to try all sorts of different foods in order to make that budget. It made me a better cook. It made me sort of look at all the things we could do for free, getting movies out of the library, getting books, going to the dollar theater on the weekends. There were so many things that I could do that didn't cost a lot of money, but they fed my soul in a way that I needed it. An excellent training for anything else you had to do later on in life. Oh, it is so helpful. And it's my kids tease me, but we travel a lot. My whole family, we all love to travel and we take our kids all over the world. We always set a budget and whether it's two weeks or three weeks or 10 days, the budget winds up about the same. If the tickets are expensive, then we figure out how to make it up in terms of hotel costs. Early on with our kids, we got them involved in the planning and people thought we were nuts because like, I think my son was maybe eight and my daughter was 10 when we were planning a big two-week national park trip. We made everybody responsible for part of the trip. So the kids had $1,000 and they had to figure out where we were going to stay, get the hotel rooms, any activities we were going to do there. And the two good lessons from that is my son was on it and he stayed totally in budget, which is just the way he is in general. My daughter wound up in having a problem because the hotels nearby where we were going to in Yellowstone by Old Faithful had sold out. And we either had to drive like 50 miles in and out every day to meet budget, or we had to keep looking to see where we could find a hotel. She kept looking until something canceled. It was a little bit over budget for her. So she had to come to us, explain why she thought this had tremendous value and ask for the additional money to go over budget. That was a great lesson for her. And it was a wonderful conversation for us to have because we could all see how we made these judgments around money. This was worth the investment. She got its rooms with balconies facing Old Faithful. We're like, yeah, that's worth the extra $60 a night. But I think it's important for money to have a regular conversation in the family. And I think we were fortunate growing up, we did. My parents made us responsible for money early on, like going to buy the newspaper, walking down the street when you were five or six years old to go get the newspaper. You had to know how much it cost. You had to know what the coins were. Doing similar things with our kids, getting them to pay when they would get a treat. You know, what is a dollar? What is $5? What is that relative to other things you can buy? With that money. It's just an important thing to have that dialogue with what money and finances means. Is there anything you know now about money that you wish you knew when you were younger? So I think I would have appreciated a little better understanding about retirement investing. When you are in a long education pathway, you're worried about paying your student loans, you're still in low paid jobs. You're worried about being able just to cover your living expenses. I wish I had thought about setting aside a little bit of money, even when I was very young, because I understood interest compounding, but I don't think I fully appreciated what a difference it would be, even starting with a small amount at age 22 versus starting with even bigger amounts at age 35. And I was 35 when I finally had my first job and as an attending surgeon, Huge difference in salary. I can put much more money away, but missing those 13 years makes a huge difference. Now that I'm on the other end of my career, I have to put so much more money 
towards my retirement out of my current budgets because I lost the opportunity for compounding. Yes, that's a conversation that everyone needs to have and learn about it. You know, the younger, the better when it comes to compound interest and understanding the impact of that over a lifetime. So, Susan, you have a daughter and a son. How are you raising your own children when it comes to guiding them on issues such as career, money, those kind of things? So for career, I lean back, I would say mostly on my mom. I have five siblings and we're each very different. Everybody's very successful. She let us be our own people. And I, even though it's hard, sometimes as a parent, you have to let people find their passion. And if you can find your passion in what you do, you can get joy out of it and sort of carve your own path. People ask, do you want your, my husband's a lawyer. Do you want your kids to be a lawyer or a doctor? And we're like, only if they really feel like there's nothing else that is their passion. And I think in career guidance, you have to take risks. There are a lot of forks in the road. And you, as the forks come up, you have to look at them each time. And sometimes the answer is stay. Sometimes it's shift. Sometimes it's go. And even in high school with classes and choosing colleges, you have to look at those opportunities and recognize sometimes you just have to pick a path and go with it. If it's not exactly what you turned out, fine. Just look for a different path. And if you can do that, you can start to weave your way into something that brings you great joy. You do have to recognize budgets, recognize the cost of getting there in your career. For me, it was time and money. You know, it was a big student loan debt to graduate from medical school with. It took me nine years after I graduated from medical school. So 13 years after I graduated from college, before I was finally done with all of my training and I could get a faculty job. But to me, it was worth it. If I didn't just love what I was doing, I think it would be harder no matter what the, I don't think you could make enough money to make up that difference. For our kids, we have always wanted them to have a concept of money, right? You don't have to make a ton of money to be really happy and to be able to live quite well. You also have to realize that no matter how much money you have, there are a lot of people who really don't have what you have and recognizing the value in the things that we have and being able to stay in budget. I love the fact that my kids, we don't go out to eat very often. We lived in upstate New York for several years when the kids were younger and there just weren't a lot of restaurants. And then we had come from New York City. So we were used to a real diversity of ethnicity and foods and that just that diversity just wasn't there. And we learned to do a lot of cooking at home and we enjoy that and we continue to enjoy that. I think it shocks our kids when they go out with their friends and their friends want to spend $20 on a dinner because it's not uncommon for the four of us to go out and spend $50 and that's it. And it's making them think about, does this have that value to me? If you love food and you're passionate about food, it's like an experience. The same way we love to travel and we'll go on a trip and sometimes we'll go to a special restaurant where we are just to experience that location it's like going to a show or a football game or something. You know, that's where we choose to invest our funds. But it's a matter of picking what is important for you and letting them make the decisions for themselves on certain things. Is it a trip? Is it going out with your friends? Is it getting your own car? Is it having certain things in your room? Is it having the opportunity to save so you can do things for college? Gradually letting them 
build their money knowledge, build their finance knowledge and skills, and then letting them go. Teaching them also that you have to invest in yourself. We're doing something a little interesting with our daughter in she's going to a state school in California. And it's actually going to be cheaper than it cost us to send her to high school. And we're going to give her some money that filled that gap. And we're asking her to invest it. The reason is to invest it so that when she graduates, can have some funds that if she needs a car or she needs to make a down payment in an apartment, or if she just wants to roll it into a retirement fund, that's a savings cushion that she can graduate with. But at the same time, she's going to have to work on paying attention to it. My brother's going to help her open an account and give her a little bit of advice. He's an investor, but she then will have to have the responsibility of paying attention to it and building that relationship that you just can't tuck it away and ignore it, that you have to be actively involved in your finances and your investment. You know, if she loses it all, it's not a tremendous amount of money, but there's a lot of skill building that's in there. I appreciate that my parents were very good at teaching us about money, but I also wish I had thought a little bit more about being more independent with my investing at a younger age. Yes, investing is as important as saving and budgeting just to build that future wealth. And it's great that you're doing it with your daughter because, you know, just having that confidence is 50% of the battle. Finally, Susan, what advice do you have for people raising girls in today's world? Girls are amazing. We really need to look at all the amazing skills and ways that they think and the things they bring to the table. We also just have to realize that we often think about girls as being great at language. Math is a language. And if you really think about it, it's a universal language. We need to help them not be afraid of mathematics, even if it doesn't come as easily to them giving them the boost where they need it to realize that this is just as important as learning how to speak their native language, that everybody needs to speak the native language of mathematics and feel comfortable in their skills. Nobody's bad at math. If you just, you feel like you're bad at math, you just need to practice a little bit more. You need to build your vocabulary in mathematics. And that's incredibly important. So much wisdom and great advice today, Dr. Susan Bacata. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Banking on Goals podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate the podcast and be sure to hit subscribe or follow so you can receive notifications of new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and at bankingongoals.com.